You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you, Maria. How are we doing, Embassy? Great. And again, I hope you're better after. Uh, these 35 minutes are over. My name is Chris Cook. I'm the lead pastor here. And admittedly so, um, I'm really glad the students are here because they're overrated. And I'm really glad you are. So, um, look, let's be honest. Let's be honest. You know, it's tough to be a next generation focused church. You know, just they're takers. You know, honestly, they're takers. They're all takers. Um, and I'm just kidding. We love students, um, but they don't listen to these podcasts anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> so again, my name is Chris Cook. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, super glad you're here. Uh, if it is your first time, um, we'd love to help you move beyond rows. Um, we have city groups that just kicked off. Uh, that's a great next step uh, after our Sunday gathering. And again, if you want to take any next step, there's a code in front of you. Scan that. Um, you can connect with the staff. We can uh, point you toward the city group. Or like Maria said, uh, please check out intro uh, to Embassy on October 20th. Um, but that will be a, a, a great uh, time together uh, at our house. And that will be the last thing we will host before we have baby number four, um, which, I mean, I may not even see you all for like a month. I don't know. I'm terrified. I had like a four-year break from having kids to now what we're about to do again. And I'm realizing it wasn't the best idea. So I don't know. I might move out. I'm trying to get my mother-in-law to move up for a month. I'm going to go down to Dallas. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, <clears throat> so we are going to jump back into our sermon series titled Union. Like Maria said, we um, have uh, opened the book of Ephesians. This is where we'll be for um, five, six weeks here in the fall. Uh, and then uh, a similar amount of time in the spring. We'll take a break in between um, the fall and the spring, one for, for me to have baby number four. Uh, actually, Allison's going to really do it all. Uh, I'll be cheering her along. Um, if we had kids the other way, I always said we'd have one. If I was the one delivering, uh, we'd have one child. Um, but this will be our fourth. She's amazing. Um, so we'll take a break for that. And then I want to take a break for Advent. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll jump back into uh, Ephesians in the spring. But Ephesians breaks really nicely um, into the first three chapters and the latter three chapters. There's six chapters in the book. Um, and the first three chapters talk about our position in Christ. The latter three chapters talk about our practice in Christ. Okay? Um, and uh, another way to say that maybe is, is 
is God's design for his people and God's directions for his people. So the front half of this book is, is really, in the best way, theological. Um, but I, I want us to, um, to think differently. I think God wants us to think differently. The Apostle Paul wanted the Ephesian church to think differently. And from understanding what's true and what God, what God has done by changing our position in Christ, then the whole Christian life flows out of that a complete shift in practice, okay? Um, and so uh, I want to kind of answer the question that maybe you're asking, maybe you're not, but you should, which is why Ephesians, why now? Um, Ephesians is known as the epistle of the church. Um, it's, a, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church plant in Ephesus, this cosmopolitan ancient city, um, about what the church is and, and what it should look like, okay? And, and um, Ephesus um, was this, this kind of massive port city on the Aegean that was home to the temple of the goddess Artemis, this, this great fertility goddess in Greco-Roman culture. Um, and it, um, it shared as a city a lot of things similar to Bloomington. Uh, it, it struggled maybe, if you will, with a lot of the isms that we do. Okay, pluralism was a big thing. Um, just multiple deities being worshiped. It's like the more the merrier. Okay, um, a huge various uh, a variety and, and mix of ideologies and just perspectives on reality and, and, and different cosmologies, if you will, um, that neighbors shared. Um, there was a lot of sensuality because of um, just that ancient um, worship of Artemis, okay? And um, there was a lot of materialism because it was a really wealthy city. And so when I think about us as a church plant, being a year and a half old in a new city, um, I don't think there's a better book for us right now to read, to really understand, okay, what does it look like to be the church? Right, let's break from what our paradigms are because of how we did or didn't grow up, but what is the church as, as God designed it, um, and, then, and then how do we live that out? How do we look like um, God's intention for us? And, and, and like I said, the book, the book of Ephesians um, really gets that for us, okay? So last Sunday, uh, if you were here, um, you were with me as we walked through verses 1 through 6, really 3 through 6. Um, if you weren't, you can catch the podcast wherever you get podcasts, but we looked at this this one long run-on sentence, and this is why I had Maria read the, the whole kind of first section of this chapter. Verses 3 through 14 is actually one long run-on sentence in the Greek, right? It's this, this eulogy of praise that the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, can't help but just like knee-jerk reaction go like, wow. And he just goes off. And what God's doing in redemptive history and how that that, that means everything for us, right? How we get caught up in, in what God's bringing about. And so what I want to do this morning um, is, uh, is focus in on the back half of this section, okay? Um, and, um, man, with our city groups, um, if you're in one, you know this. If you're not, you don't, but I'll explain it. We, we do a, a kind of aligned sermon discussion. We take what we talk about here in a monologue on a Sunday morning, and we dialogue about it. We move from rose to horseshoes, and we really engage with, okay, well, why does this really matter? Right? Why does this really matter? Why, why are we coming for 35 minutes and opening up the Word of God and expositing and expounding upon it um, in, in our Sunday gathering? Like, why does this really matter, and how does this apply to us? And, and we had our city group um, on Wednesday night, and we're talking about this passage, and we're talking about just really the, the, the first section, especially of being just chosen in Christ. Um, and it, it still kind of was hard for us to get our hands around, right? The passage was almost slippery, kind of like an ivory bar of soap. And I think that's great for one reason, but, but not so great for another. For one reason, um, we're talking about the mystery of God. And so if you could just really get your mind around this whole verses 3 through 14, um, I'd be worried about you, you know? Right? So we're talking about the mystery of God, 
its point is to put us in a posture of praise, okay? Like when, when we get to mystery, we start thinking about the things of God, and we start talking about God before the foundations of the world, choosing us in Christ, like it should move us to praise, right? These are things that God intends to be a pillow for our heart. We shouldn't make it a stumbling block for our mind, all right? So it should move us to worship, right? So we shouldn't be able to get our hands all the way around it. But as a pastor, that really bothers me, right? Because I spend a lot of time trying to make really complex things really clear for us to really grasp, okay? And so it, it even bothered me in the discussion. of like, man, I preached that sermon, and I, I mean, golly, okay, that wasn't clear, you know, which is always fun feedback for me. It's like, all right, I'm going to do better next time. Um, but I, I want to make things a little more clear for us, but I think the reason it's so hard for us to grasp verse 3 through 14, I'll take, some I'll take some blame, but I think the reason it's so hard for us to grasp 3 through 14 is because it's such a, a Copernican shift, if you will, right? Um, so Copernicus, you know, put forward this idea that, um, that the whole cosmos doesn't revolve around the earth, but that the earth actually revolves around the sun, right? This was like a massive framework shift, okay? Uh, Copernican just revolution. It just kind of blew everyone's mind. It took about 300 years. You had to have Kepler come in and Galileo come in and just other people go, yeah, you know, that's actually true, you know, but that was just so radically different. You know, it's like, wait, the earth is a sphere. It's not flat and you just kind of fall off the end if you go too far in the oceans, you know, um, and I, I think for us, um, that's almost kind of what it takes because we're so conditioned to have the world ori orient around ourselves that we're actually, when we're reading verses 3 through 14, the reason it's so hard for us to grasp is because it's so God-centric, not so me-centric. And as we talk about salvation, it's really framed in a God-centered way, right? So obviously, I want to take it and apply it to your life and go, man, this is what it means for you. But like, you matter, but you're not the point, right? And the evangelical church is just so great at applying it to you, the person, you, the individual, but in a lot of ways, what it can do is that it can, almost, it can almost misframe salvific history as if it's for our glory. It's for our good, yes, but it's ultimately for God's glory, and he's doing it for his name. And so I think a reason 3 through 14 is hard for us to grasp is because it's so God-centered, not me or us-centered, okay? So I just want to phrase it that way, um, but, but I want to make it clear. Um, so, so we're going to actually kind of zoom out as far as we can, almost like we're at like the International Space Station, and see salvific history in that bigger kind of swath. And then I want us to look at what the key to really understanding it is. So um, I got to go to uh, Holiday World yesterday. Anybody been there? Yeah? We like Holiday World. Free drinks, free sunscreen, free parking. You know, delightful. Like, I pulled up, and I was like, wait, I'm not paying for parking. And I walked in, and I'm watching people, like, go to the Oasis. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I want to go to the Oasis. And I went, and it was free, and I loved it. Um, and so me and my two oldest uh, went. Uh, we, <laughs> my oldest is very tenacious, the one that just walked out of here. And she uh, did Girl Scouts last year and wanted to sell cookies. And she really wanted to sell cookies, and she sold a ton of cookies. And so we got two tickets to Holiday World. And um, you know how the parent thing works. It's like, yeah, we'll go, we'll go. And then like six months later, nine months later, like we still haven't gone. And Allison's like, if you don't take your children to Holiday World, like you're never going to live it down. So I took the older girls. We went. We had a blast. And I was um, grabbing another free thing there. Um, but this kind of park map, right? I love maps. 
Um, and Holiday World, um, man, you get lost in it, you know? It's not Disney World, but I mean, you know, you walk from like Christmas to Halloween to Fourth of July. It's just kind of like it's, it's a lot. Um, and without the map, you're just kind of like wandering, you know? And some of it sort of makes sense. You're like, okay, there's Santa Claus. I'm in Christmas, you know, right? There's a Jack Lantern. I'm in Halloween. But the map helps a lot, okay? And more than the map, the key helps a lot, all right? And without the key to the map, the map doesn't even make sense because there's just like a bunch of numbers and colors, and you're just like, what's that? And my kids, well, my youngest can't really read. So like when I gave her the map, like we were just like lost, you know? Because um, she doesn't understand the key, okay? Um, that's kind of like what Ephesians 1 is, all right? Ephesians 1 is, is almost a map, if you will, for the whole Bible. Ephesians 1, especially in, in Paul's just cascade of praise, verses 3 through 14, he's really just summing up God's salvific history from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you want it in a few short verses, what Genesis to Revelation is about, key in on what Paul's talking about here in verses 3 through 14, Okay, but when inside of that, okay, there's a key to understanding it all, okay, um, and it's this phrase that we looked at last week, in Christ, that's used 11 times, I don't know why I just showed you four, multiply that by three and minus one, 11 times, um, and, and, and we're going to see how Christ is actually the key to understanding the map, to understanding the whole of salvific history, all right, so you're tracking with me? So I'm going to move us through uh, verses 7 through 14, uh, and I want us to see God's ultimate cosmic plan, okay? Christ's central role in our current place. That's where I'm going, really simple. God's uh, cosmic plan, Christ's central role, our current place. And I want to ask you a few questions. What is God doing in history and why? What is God doing in history and why? And these, 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 these are really foundational things that undergird your worldview, that undergird how you approach reality, your cosmology, how you see things and make sense of things, all right? So I'm, I'm trying to help us dig down and, and see some deeper stuff. Um, what's God doing in history and why? How is God doing that? How is he bringing about such a cosmic thing? And then ultimately, um, why can you be so sure that you're being brought in? Why can you be so sure that you're being brought in, okay? Um, so uh, with the, the killing of George Floyd uh, a few years back, um, Man, our, our country faced just kind of a racial reckoning, um, is how I would put it. Um, and the words of doc, Dr. Martin Luther King were used a lot, you know, um, in that time period, especially on, on social media, right? And social media has a way of just like kind of like truncating the argument to where it's just like, you know, talking points. But um, whether it be Insta or TikTok or, you know, True Social, I, I don't know what you're on, um, right? You, you just, you're, you're encouraged to use quotes. And, and I want to read a quote for us that was passed around a ton during that time that um, I'm sure you've heard, and if you haven't, um, it's actually from a, a speech that MLK gave in 1968 in the National Cathedral. But the quote is this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. You heard it? And the arc of the moral universe is long, but it, it bends towards justice. And... My interest in these words is not for what they do or don't say about racial reconciliation. That's not where we're going this morning. My interest is, again, what's foundational to a phrase or a statement or a quotation like that? Um, what's beneath it? What, what worldview or understanding of the cosmos has to be there for you to make a statement like that and to it, for it to actually be so? All right? Because I would say that words like this can only be spoken if you have a hope, all right, 
that one day all things that are wrong will be made right. If you have a hope that there is divine order to the cosmos, all right? right? Na a naturalistic worldview doesn't get you there. There's a lot of theological understanding in a statement like that, okay? And Dr. Martin Luther King obviously is a preacher, right? He's a Christian. Um, his understanding of, of, of the universe, of the cosmos, is that there's a divine architect, that things aren't random, that history actually has a point, that there is a cosmic plot line, and there's a start and a stop to it. And in the in-between, in the in God is accomplishing his purposes. Now, I just want to make this point really clear and really quickly. That is not a product of naturalism. And science doesn't get you there. And so, if you are more of a naturalist, maybe a pseudo-naturalist, um, if you do just believe the science, you need to understand that you're, you're standing on borrowed foundations. All right? That is a distinctly Christian understanding of the cosmos. All right? Because what the Bible says is true is that God is actually doing something in history. And I want us to look at a couple short verses in Ephesians 1 that, that point this out. Because you're actually going to get the climactic kind of idea of what God is accomplishing. All right, look at verses 9 and 10 in our passage. He, being God, look at verse 9, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, is what it says. And then listen to this. As a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now, I want you to grasp the significance of these two verses. God's will is a mystery, uh-huh, right? His purpose is a puzzle, uh-huh, tracking with your critter. His plan is a secret, but what 9 and 10 is telling us is now it's all been revealed in Christ. If you want the key to the cosmos, if you want to understand how this map thing works, you got to look to Christ, Right? With Christ, the light switch is flipped on. Nothing's changed. It's all been there. We just haven't seen it. It's, we've seen it dimly, but now the light switch is flipped on. Right? It's the gospel that's the key to everything, that makes sense of this Bible, let alone the human experiences that you have. And without it, I would argue that you're pretty, pretty incoherent with how you approach the world. But it hurts your head too much to really think, it, think about it and tease it out. And so you just kind of go through life doing what you did because that's what you always do. What the Bible tells us, what Ephesians 1 is telling us, is that God has a grand plan, that history is his story. And he's bringing something about, and he's doing that all in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That history has an arc, and it bends towards justice. Okay? Um, so I'm going to explain some stuff in some pretty conceptual terms, but I think it's really important to understand. Um, the Bible tells us that God is love, right? And I'm going to use some just, again, some just tweetable stuff, right? You just throw it out, but we don't understand the context and what it means. God is love. That love is actually his essence, okay? So I want you to get this. The way that Ephesians 1 pictures God, um, and I pointed this out last week, is it shows us uh, a God that is triune, that is one God in three persons, Right, because we see the Father choosing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing. And it's in the background. You don't see it in the foreground, but it's in the background. Okay? And if you don't understand that, it's not going to make sense to you. Right? But Christianity um, postures God as one God 
in three persons. And this is why that is important. All right? I would say that the essence of love is self-giving, right? Love is, is a self-giving union, okay? Love is a self-giving union. You have to have two parties to have love. And so the, the picture of this, all right, when we see the Son revealed in His role in, in salvific history in the Spirit, is that God from eternity past, eternally existent, is love. That in the Godhead, there's a perfect self-giving union between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All right, how else could God be, be love? Right? How else could he be self-sufficient? But his very essence and the fact that he's one God in three persons allows him to be loved. That the, the Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Son. And you see this play out all through the Bible. Right? Father, not my will, but yours be done. Self-giving union. Right? Or you see the Father looking at the Son and going, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And God, in his self-giving union decided to create man in his image. And if you go back and read Genesis, the language is actually corporate. Because the scripture actually says in Genesis, let us make man in our image. You see a triune God, all right? So out of that perfect union, God makes man in his image, all right? Um, another way you can kind of think about it is there's a divine dance going on, and everything is in perfect sync, renization. I guess I can say it that way, Right? It's the waltz, and it's a beautiful thing, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God, in his delight, says, let's make man in our image and invite him into the dance. All right? Let's make man in, his, in our image and, and invite him into the dance. And we danced for two chapters. Because Genesis chapter 3, we started to pop, lock, and drop it, and everything went wrong. Right? Like, it was just like a bad high school dance. We are just like, okay. I feel awkward, like, just being here, you know, right? Everything went wrong. Or I don't know, what, what are those, like, kind of dances where everybody gets different headphones and you're, you're listening to different songs and, and people are just doing crazy things, you know? And it's like, there's no way we're listening to the same song. And if we are, I'm worried for you. Or I'm worried for me. But, like, our bodies are moving to different rhythms, different beats, okay? In Genesis chapter 3, everything went wrong, right? So you have creation, you have fall, you have redemption, and you have restoration. And that's the arc of Genesis to Revelation. That's the arc of Ephesians 3 through 14, okay? And so there's this divine dance going on, and we're dancing to a different beat come Genesis 3, all right? And what the gospel is going to tell us is that God's going to actually invite us back into the dance. And that was a lot harder than you think, all right? So I just want to read this passage from 2 Peter because, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful one, but I want to connect some dots that, that I'm, I'm, I don't have tons of time, but, man, you're going from Genesis to, to Christ showing up on the scene. And, and if there's any people on the face of this planet that weren't going to, like, buy into this one God and three person thing, it's the, the zealous monotheistic Jews. And so you're watching these 12 disciples try and make sense of who Jesus is when he's calling himself the Son of God right? When, when he's doing these, these miraculous things, when he's, he's, he's speaking these just powerful statements about the kingdom to come, right? You're, you're, you're watching the disciples just like their, their, their Copernican revolution just happens. Just, everything's just poof. And there's a climactic point in all the gospels. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration where, where Jesus 
goes up on a mountain. He's transfigured before Peter, James, and John, three of the 12. And a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And it's just like, whoa. Okay, so Jesus is God, but not fully, right? And, trying to, and look, I, I'm not going to fully explain it. I can't give you some analogy on this side of heaven, like a clover leaf or all that kind of stuff, because it, none of it fits, you know? And we understand things by association, and there's nothing created that is like the triunity of God. So you will never fully understand God's triunity. But it's all implicit here in this passage. What I want you to see is there's a divine dance going on. And we were created to dance with God. And sin separates us. Sin makes you pop, lock, and drop it. And God's like, I, I, I want to dance with that, you know? We got to fix that. You got to get back on beat, okay? Um, this is why in John 17, if you look at the high priestly prayer, this is Jesus. And his prayer is, it's union. It's that his disciples might be one as him and the Father are one. And he actually prays for you in John 17 because he goes on to pray not just for those that are his followers then, but those that would be his followers through his followers for future disciples, that they would be one. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is one with God. They've been brought back into the divine dance, okay? All right, so, so that's God's cosmic plan, right? We see what God's doing, just really big picture, okay? How does he bring that about? What about Christ's central role? All right, Christ is the key. Um, look at verses 3 through 14. And I want you to try and count up real quickly how many times the phrase in him is in that passage. And I might have said it earlier, and if I did and you took notes, gosh darn it, um, you already know the answer. Eleven times. Eleven. All right? Eleven times this phrase, all right, is, is in these three verses. Okay, so God's cosmic plan is ultimately to bring us back into reunion, union, which is why we're tied in the sermon series this, union with him. And not just humanity, the, the chief of his creation, but all of creation that's gone awry because of sin and its curse. All of redemption is about bringing us back to the dance, all right? The key is Christ, right? That's the operative phrase. If you're to take that phrase out of verses 3 through 14, it would be a muddled mess, like, if you struggle to understand what 3 through 14 is telling you right now, you really want to understand if you took those 11 phrases out. It's like, what? In him? In him? Okay. Like, I, I'm not following. And in the same way, if you take Christ out of Christianity, if you take Christ out of the redemptive plan, none of it makes sense. It's only when you see Christ that you see everything for what it is and what it's always been. But it, it's been a mystery, and now God has revealed it. Okay, um, this is what um, Peter says, actually in reference to the Mount of Transfiguration in 2 Peter 1. He says, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. I saw him transfigured, and Moses and Elijah with him is what he's saying. Verse 17, he received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice to, came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard his voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's going, look, believe in my testimony. And he's saying, and, and don't just believe in my testimony. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what he's saying is, 
yes, this is kind of revelatory. It's new, but it's not, and it's always been there. But Christ flipped the light switch on. We've always had the prophetic word, and, that, and that's why, man, it, it takes the New Testament to understand the Old Testament because everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, forward to, looking forward to him in expectation. Everything in the New Testament points back, okay? And Christ flips the light on. Christ is central to God's cosmic plan and what he's bringing about. He is the key. Um, playgrounds. Uh, <laughs> The playgrounds I grew up on and the playgrounds my kids play on now are quite different. You know, my kids, uh, I was actually at Childs Elementary, uh, and they actually have, they have a new playground and an old one, and we went to the old one across the creek, and my kids were like, you know, Dad, it's all metal, you know? I was like, yes, we didn't have soft cushions to, like, protect us from the hard world, you know? I used to jump on a trampoline without a net all the time. No cushions either, you know? And I can't tell you how many times I hit my face on the bar of my trampoline or just like fell through the springs and came in crying. And my dad's like, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing's wrong. He's like, that's right. Nothing's wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like toughing you up. The playgrounds that I grew up in had a great game, a little thing called tetherball. Love tetherball. All right. Um, it's the, the pole in the ground with a string and a ball. Not complicated. Okay. You got one friend on one side, you're on the other side, and you're trying to spin it clockwise or counterclockwise, and you're trying to wrap it around that pole. In a sense, Christ is the pole. You get rid of the pole, <laughs> and all you have is a ball and a string and a dirt. Right? Like, you walk up and you're like, let's play ball and a string. You know? Like, everything, everything wraps around him. He provides structure to everything when you look at the scriptures and God's cosmic plan. You lose that ball and a string sitting in the dirt. Okay? Um, I'll maybe, maybe give you a different example. Our sun and the solar system, right? We're talking about like, you know, a heliocentric view um, to the world or to the cosmos. Think about the sun and our solar system. And everything revolving around it. I mean perfectly. Not just the planets, but just the stars, the asteroids. If you shrunk the sun in any degree or to any degree, let alone moved it, let alone took it, took it out of the picture, like, you know what you would get? Chaos. Absolute chaos. Like everything would go back into slamming into itself, right? It's the sun that provides perfect Symmetry and orbit and distant for everything else that, that revolves around it. What I'm trying to say is you can't overestimate Christ and God's cosmic plan. You can't make too much of him. He's not just like one doctrine in the whole of Christianity. It's like, man, let me just like understand the systematic theology, how else this, this stuff fits. It's like, no, look at Christ. Understand Christ. You cannot overestimate him. He's the pole. He's the sun. You cannot minimize him. And you don't get Christianity. You don't get the whole swath of what God's doing in human history. And not even just human history. In all of his salvific history. If you don't understand how Christ fits. So how does he fit? Look at verse 7 and 8. All right. In him, in Christ, this is what it says. It says, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. There are 1,167 chapters in the Bible. 1,167 chapters in the Bible. And I walked through what the arc of salvific history is, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You know how many chapters take creation and fall? Three. Because after Genesis 3, we're in redemption, all right? Creation, high point, fall, low point, redemption, slow, pick back up, right? And then one day, restoration. And that, that carries on all through your Bible, basically all the way to Revelation 3. And then we start getting a picture of, of restoration to come and God's recreation of the new heavens and the earth. But the, it takes the entirety of the Bible to tell the story of redemption. And at the center of that story is the person of Christ because it's all a plot line to his lineage. Abraham and his family come a nation and for that nation, a promised one. And then wait, hey, that promised one's not just for that nation, but for all people. And the high point in that whole picture is this promised one, this anointed one, this Messiah or Christ, not coming and conquering, but coming and suffering. Why? Why? I want to point out some really big words here. All right, redemption, forgiveness, and grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Um, I want to pack this a, a little, un, unpack this a little bit for us. Redemption has this, this, this idea of freedom from enslavement. That's what it denotes, freedom from enslavement, okay? The Old Testament archetypal, archetypal example of this is the Exodus account where, where, where God redeems the nation of Israel out of enslavement under the yoke of the Egyptians, okay? Um, and if you remember that story, um, God went to, <laughs> went to battle, right, with the, the 10 best gods that Egypt had to offer. That's why there's 10 plagues, right? Because he's taking them down by, one by one. In the final plague, he takes down the greatest god of all, which is Pharaoh, right? So, so that, that's how Exodus is playing out. Like the, the main character in Exodus is God, and he's just, he's getting in the octagon, right, <laughs> with this nation that has enslaved his promised people. And little by little by little, one by one, he's taken them down. And the last plague is his just knockout punch to Pharaoh. But it's a judgment across the whole land, and he provides a way of salvation for his people that by faith would just trust him and receive it, right, to take an unblemished lamb to take its life as a substitute and spread its blood on the doorposts of the home that they're living in. Do you see the imagery? Do you see what God is foreshadowing for this one day lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world? This redemption, because what the Bible says is that we actually have a, a greater problem than, than the Israelites did in their enslavement to Egypt. And we have a more sinister master because we're actually enslaved to sin. And before Christ, we're in the domain of darkness. This is what Ephesians 2 is all about. But by God's grace, we can be transferred in the kingdom of the beloved son. How does that happen? It happens with Christ on the cross redeeming us, freeing us from our enslavement to sin by giving up his life. And then from that is forgiveness. 
And all of that is according to the riches of his grace. Do you see the, 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 the just rich imagery in there? This is the central way that God is making sense of his cosmic plan. And everything in salvific history is building to this point. You cannot overestimate it. Let me close with this. Um, this last piece. All right, Christ's redemption is, is again, just this, this key. Well, actually, let me say this. Um, we're the start of it, but we're just the first fruits. And we um, being the church. All right? Romans 8 has this uh, just powerful statement about all creation just groaning as if in labor pains, waiting for the redemption of the sons of man. What Ephesians is telling us, what, what especially these first, you know, verses 3 through 14 is telling us, is that what God is doing in reconciling humanity back to himself is just the start of one day restoring all creation. Okay? Um, let me say it this way. In Christ, God is reconciling not just the church, but ultimately creation. Again, I'm, I'm super 30,000 feet cosmic, but you got to understand the big picture. That everything that is broken will one day be mended. Everything that is does kind of disjointed will one day be united. One day, every wayward child will be rightly related. Every deadbeat dad will be rightly related, right? Every warring nation will be rightly related. This is the Christian hope. If you're not a Christian, I don't know where you get this hope. You pull it out of a pie in the sky, but like, this is the Christian hope. That if, that if God would do this in human history 2,000 years ago, this is what he's working towards. I'll go even further. One day every cancerous cell will be rightly related. Every disordered ecosystem will be rightly related. Like, again, I'm talking 30,000 feet, but like there will be a day when all that was created that got out of step with the divine dance will get in step again. And it's starting with the church, but it won't stop there. That's an unbelievably beautiful picture that is uniquely Christian. God's cosmic plan, Christ's central role, lastly, our current place. How can you be so sure that you're being brought in? Look at these last couple of verses, because this is how it kind of closes out, focusing in on God the Spirit. It says this, it says, In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you are also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I want to point out a couple things. There's, there's two ways to understand verses 11 through 12, and, I, and our English translations don't get this um, well. They, they muddy what's already not super clear. Um, the first way is when speaking about inheritance, um, it's something that God receives. And the second way is that inheritance is something you or I receive if you're a Christian, okay? And I want to, I want to look at both of them because I actually think in some ways it, it's both. Um, and there's a compelling argument. The first one, right? The first one, um, we receive an inheritance 
in that we, we become God's inheritance, all right? It's something God receives. What do I mean? Uh, Exodus 19, to go back to this, this, this redemption imagery and framework. This is what Exodus 19 says, talking about the nation of Israel. It says, now you will carefully listen to me and keep my commandment. This is God speaking to his people. You will be my own possession, my own inheritance, my own heritage. Out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. God speaking to Moses, right? The picture in the Old Testament is that the, the people of God are actually God's inheritance. And so what this is saying is that in Christ, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, God has made a way for you to be a part of the people of God, for you to be his inheritance, for you to be his heritage, his chosen people amongst all the people, to be called out and get back into that divine dance with the God that made you. That should take our breath away. All right? But there's another way to understand um, what Paul may be talking about here with inheritance is that it's not just talking about something God will receive, but something we will, okay? We receive an inheritance in that we receive God. And I want you to grasp this. We receive an inheritance that we, in that we receive God. Now, when, when most of us think about inheritance, what do we think about? Possessions, right? We think about money. Because when we receive an inheritance, it's, it's because someone we love has passed away. Right? So it's not about a person. We don't receive the person. We actually lose that person. We receive the possession. But that's not what's going on here. Okay? That's not what's going on here at all. What this passage, I think, is saying, and look at verse 14, because what it says is the down payment of our, of our inheritance until the redemption of the, uh, excuse me, let, me, let me actually go up. It says in 13, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. And it says this, it says the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to track with me. When you become a Christian, you get God. When you become a Christian, you get God. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who is rightly related to God. Someone who enters that divine dance. Someone who can be reconciled in relationship that that sin that used to divide has been dealt with because of what Christ did on the cross. And so you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you repent of your sins, and you turn back to God. And God is what you get. Right? And that, that is the greatest thing you can get. Okay? Now, <clears throat> look what it says is the down payment of our inheritance. It's a who, not a what. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. This is why inheritance can't be a possession. It's actually a person. Um, and this is why this, this really kind of keys in and, and, and colors in what it means to be sealed. When you become a Christian, God gives you his spirit. And he comes and he dwells in you and he changes you. Right? And, and so... Man, you, you maybe have some just like really just awakening experience. I don't know how you would define it, but you're just like, whoa. And the gospel makes sense to you, and you hear it, and it, it becomes beautiful and sweet to you, and you believe it, and you repent of your sins, and things start to change from the inside out. And God starts to kind of like order your house, the house of your heart. And you start to notice, and other people start to notice, and it creates some tension in maybe your marriage or your family or your friend groups. 
And then, like, you realize God's not just, like, ordering your house. Like, he's, like, cleaning it up, right? You got, like, some mold on the backside of your house where the sun doesn't get to, and he's spraying it with Clorox. You know, like, he's cleaning some things up. Like, he's organizing your garage. You know, that thing was a mess. Your basement was dank. And now, like, man, like, you want to throw a party and invite people down there. It's great. And then, like, years later, you start to realize, like, there's construction projects going on because he's building something more. He's adding on. And you're like, what's going on? He's like, I'm building a home for myself to dwell. Like, that's, what's God, that, that's what God is doing in the Christian. And this is what's so cool about it. This idea of God dwelling with us, dwelling with you, and the confidence, the assurance that it gives the Christian that if God would give you his spirit as the down payment, one day you'll get him in full. What is a down payment? It's a promissory note. What happens if the full payment doesn't come? You lose the down payment. So by reason, for God not to give you himself in full, he would have to cease to be God. He would have to give up his spirit. This is the Christian assurance. Not that you prayed the prayer the right way, you said the right words, or you went to this camp or that school. It's that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God and He's changing your life. And if, if you've gotten the Spirit here and now, you're going to get God in full then and there. Do you understand the, the, the confidence and the assurance that comes from that? The security? It's a seal. It's a stamp. It's a brand by which God says, I'm yours and you're mine. It's a wedding ring. That you can't lose. It's a tattooed wedding ring where the beloved says, I love you. Come dance. I want to end with this idea and the band can come forward. Our passage actually phrases um, in verse 6, it phrases Christ as the beloved one. And I don't want us to miss what it costs Christ to redeem us. All right, the language there is we have redemption through his blood. Not only did God not have to create us because he was quite sufficient without us, but he certainly didn't have to go to the great extremes in redemption to bring us back. But he did. And the way he did it is through the sacrifice of his son. The beloved one, because he loved the father so much, came after us and he chased us down and he found us out and he gave up his life so that you would never have to wonder how much God loves you and to what extent he would go to to bring you back onto the dance floor, right? You, you ran out of the dance. You're not even pop-locking and dropping. You, like, you ran away. And he went out and he brought you back in and he's teaching you to dance again if you're a Christian. If you're not, I want you to see how gracious and how glorious God is. That the things that are out of step and broken in your life are because you don't have your loves rightly ordered. And it's only in understanding the gospel and just being just absolutely having your breath taken away that can change. And my hope would be that that would happen if not today. Um, while you spend time with us here on a Sunday and you just listen. So let me pray for us. Let me pray that we would be a people 
that, yeah, we just stand in awe of what God's doing in salvific history, and we'd be a people that, um, that are changed by it and that speak of it. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the hope that we have in it, and we thank you for Christ. We thank you that, um, wow, that he would go to that extreme to give up his life, that we might be forgiven, that we might be redeemed, that we might find freedom and learn to dance again. So I thank you for the beautiful just picture that it gives us. I pray that we would be a church, we'd be a people um, that live in such a way that all those things, they're so evidently true. We live beautiful lives because we've been loved so well by the beloved one. Pray these things in his name, his authority, his power. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.